In December of 2022, an article in The Athletic quoted a former ESPN executive as calling Fanatics the Amazon of sports buying, and, and that sounds about right. If you go to fanatics.com, you can get anything from an Arsenal shot glass to some Minnesota Wild jammies to a Jake DeLome throwback Carolina Panthers jersey and, more saliently for the purposes of this podcast, collectibles galore. We're talking game-worn jerseys, we're talking signed footballs, we're talking autographed baseballs, and, of course, sports cards! The question then becomes, how the, how the hell you do all that? And how did Fanatics get to this point? And, now that they're here, what happens next? Excellent questions all, and we've got a big muckety-muck from Fanatics who will answer them, and those answers will help us all collect this. Welcome to Collect This, powered by CSG, your go-to sports card grading company. Here's your host, Alan Goldscher. Dave Liner, president of trading cards at Fanatics Collectibles. Uh, why are you slumming with the likes of this? <laughs> <laughs> I've been slumming at this for 13 years now. Um, oh, okay. You know, been, 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 a, been a part of, uh, you know, tops for over 12 years before Fanatics acquired us um, a year ago. Um, so a year in now at Fanatics Collectibles and um, love it. Just love what I do and love the hobby. I want to talk to you about that journey because I don't know about you, but everybody, uh, not just collectors, but sports fans are like, how do you get a job in this space? How do you get a job in this industry? But first, Dave, I'm going to read a little ad spot. Are you ready? Yep. <clears throat> Here we go. Check out this special deal for you. Collect this listeners and, and studies, Dave, have shown that collect this listeners are as a whole exceedingly attractive, as are our guests. Uh, head over to CSGCars.com slash join. Select premium. Use the promo code collect this and you can join CSG at the premium level for just $99, $50 off the regular price. What? Not only that, but you'll get a $150 savings cash credit. So the price of membership pays for itself. But wait, there's more. You'll get access to exclusive benefits like discounts on select add-on services, 24-7 online submission tracking, and 10% off at the CCG store. Once again, csgcards.com slash join, select premium, and use the promo code collect this. Get your grade on with CSG. Dave, as I noted, everybody wants in on this yeah. industry, right? You've been doing it for, as you said, over a decade. How did you get here? Take me from when you were a little Dave collecting your, you know, Steve Garvey cards and, and now you're running the joint. Yeah. So, uh, it, it's a, a ride, I guess, that started in the late 1980s. Um, so, uh, I grew up in, uh, what I later learned was the junk wax era, uh, as many of mm -hmm. us know and, uh, yep. describe. And, uh, there's certain love affairs with that and certain non love affairs with the junk uh, wax era. <laughs> uh, but grew up in the late 80s, early 90s, collecting, uh, lived in Chicago. So, um, you know, I was a Cubs fan, um, some tough times for the Cubs, even though in the late 80s, you know, we had the likes of Greg Maddox and, uh, Raphael Palmero, uh, Sean Dunstan. Uh, Mark Grace. Mark Grace. <laughs> I'm a Chicago guy, too. I'm in Chicago right now. I live four blocks from Wrigley. This is your old stomping ground. Oh, yeah. This is, I mean, I, I grew up all around Wrigley chasing baseballs on Waveland, uh, home run balls, all, all that fun stuff. So, yeah. So, um, started off, um, you know, collecting um, one of the cards that was near and dear to me, and this might be a little bit painful, but Jerome Walton. That was like one oh. of the big cards, 1989 Upper Deck. The high series 1990 tops 
Jerome Walton was my guy. He was going to bring us to the promised land. That was uh, the guy. Not so much. Um, but um, like many, uh, unfortunately, I kind of stopped collecting uh, around the time of the strike. Um, you know, that really hurt the card collecting industry. Um, at the time, you know, baseball cards were what it was all about. You know, I collected basketball as well, given I was in Chicago and we had a guy named Michael Jordan who uh, happened to win. Heard many, of him. Um, yeah, heard of him. Uh, won many titles uh, and it was exciting. So, you know, I did dabble in basketball cards a little bit, but kind of stopped collecting um, for a few years, uh, kind of came back into collecting in the late 90s, um, actually more on the basketball side, uh, the 96, 97 Topps Chrome iconic set, right? Allen Iverson and Kobe Bryant and Steve Nash and all those kind of guys. Um, later, you know, the next year you had the Tracy McGrady's and the Tim Duncan's and I thought the Chrome Tech was cool. So I was dabbling more in basketball cards. Uh, early 2000s, um, got into, you know, the chase a little bit with uh, Ichiro and Albert Pujols, iconic uh, rookie class there in 2001. Um, and of course, too, I mean, I was drawn back into collecting with the advent of, you know, more prevalent autographs, um, Upper Deck really leading the way on the memorabilia side. There were some pretty mm -hmm. killer patch cards and things like that. Not that I got any of them, but the the knowing <laughs> they were out there and the, the possibilities um, were, were really exciting. So I uh, collected a bit there in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, then college happened and, you know, a real career and, and, and things like that were in the books. Uh, so I went to Indiana University, um, didn't really collect in, throughout college all that much. Um, dabbled in sports memorabilia. Some of that stuff was interesting to me. Um, started my career in financial services. So I started my career investment banking and, and private equity type stuff. I was always intrigued. Uh, I, I was an entrepreneur as a kid, had all sorts of little businesses that I ran. Always intrigued about, you know, how a company goes public, how companies, you know, build into big companies. You know, the dot-com era was really interesting in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I was really interested in that financial services uh, industry. But Call it by, you know, 2008, when we had the first kind of financial downturn or meltdown or whatever you want to call it. I kind of was disillusioned with the um, financial services industry. But lucky for me, I was working uh, for a company called Madison Dearborn Partners, private equity firm in Chicago. And mm -hmm. in October of 2007, a few months into my gig over at Madison Dearborn Partners, we teamed up with Michael Eisner's Tornante Investment Group. Eisner had just left Disney, uh, where he was CEO for decades. Um, and we took Tops private. It was uh, October of 2007, uh, one of the first deals I worked on at Madison Dearborn Partners and got to know the management team, worked on it as a portfolio company. And kind of as I was looking at options uh, coming out of Madison Dearborn, I'm like, you know what? I'm done with the financial services industry. Let's do something fun. Um, and there was a director of finance job open in the uh, sports and entertainment group at Tops, which also has a confections group, Ring Pop, Juicy Drop Pop, Bazooka Joe Gum, all that stuff. But I was on the sports and entertainment side and just felt that point in my career, you know what, I could go down the financial services track, but I like to do things that are fun and interesting and more near and dear to me. So started off as a director of finance in August of 2009. Um, and here we are in 2023. So through lots of different adjustments, changes, um, was able to learn and take on more uh, within Tops and now at Fanatics Collectibles, always been fun, always interesting. So that was my journey. Something I've noticed um, amongst people who get to where I'm at, where you're at, who have been in various industries for a long time with their feet in the sports world, right, is that there is, in effect, a dual major, right? You've got the business background, you've got the, the, the sports background, and you've got the collecting background, obviously. That's not something that can be taught. 
right? That's just something that your life path takes you. But the one commonality, of course, is collecting. Were you collecting while you were a finance guy? Yeah, I was. Um, I started, as I mentioned, I started actually getting more into um, memorabilia. Um, you know, I collected cards, then I was chasing, you know, I wanted something more rare, more unique. I started kind of dabbling in an autograph memorabilia. And like I mentioned, I always thought the trading cards with the game used memorabilia, aesthetically pleasing, they were scarce. And I started collecting those a bit, but you know, those started becoming more prevalent. So I'm like, you know, I started graduating into like, the full jerseys and the full items um i liked better because i just felt they were you know more unique and something more intriguing to me but during that era i also did collect cards all throughout so you know you can't kind of turn that part of your brain off so there were always um different cards different chases um that i was looking for collecting cubs cards again it was a struggle a little bit there 2016 we we got there we finally got our title um but I would, you know, I would collect, um, you know, the rising Cub stars. I would chase the prospects. At the same time, too, I was always kind of like picking off some of the old, you know, an Ernie Banks or a Ron Santo. Even though I didn't get to watch those guys play, I got to meet them over the years um, and intrigued by their stories and their backgrounds and, and their passion for the game. So um, I would collect those sorts of players. And then outside of um, my Cubs, um, there were players like Hal Ripken that I always really respected growing up. And, you know, obviously I, I watched him throughout that era. The Iron Man had a little bit almost like of a comic book-esque, you know, allure mm-hmm. to him. Um, and I love that 1982 Tops Traded, not the Tops with the three guys on it, the the, the Traded. Um, the yep. background, it was kind of... Um, I don't know. It's just a, a really unique card that just kind of spoke to me. So, um, you know, have some of those in high grade, things like that. So, yes, collected throughout, uh, still collect, still open packs. I was I saw that no name on front Frank Thomas that went off, I think, in golden auctions uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. First ESA 10. I, I was in on the action there. Didn't end up landing it. But certain things like that that just speak to me that are interesting to me that are fun to collect. I, I That's what intrigues me. That's what I get kind of attracted to. All right. We're going to go off the rails here because I got a bunch of questions that that were that came to the fore uh, because of your excellent work there. All right. So first of all, does the name Carl Pagel ring a bell? As an obscure Cubs uh, hunter, he was the guy like sort of a Jerome Walton-esque figure a few years back. This was the guy that was coming out of AAA. He's going to hit a thousand home runs in his career. And he his first at bat. He had a home run. Then he tanked. Oh, he man. tanked. Yeah. Very Cubs. Very Cubs. Ernie Banks. Okay. Right now, and this is a passion versus investing thing, uh, a, a collecting philosophy thing. Right now. My main goals in the collecting world are collecting Ernie Banks and Walter Payton cards. That's my thing. Do you have any are any athletes like that other than Banks who you, you don't care about the value? You just want them in your house in a nice slab. Yeah, I would probably say, I mean, the likes of Cal Ripken um, and then, you know, the Ryan Sandbergs and some of these cards. Mm. I mean, you know, some of those cards from the 80s, are they ever going to be really worth all that much of anything? Maybe not. but like. I don't know. To, have to, that, us, to, to us, to us, they're going to be worth a lot. A 1983 Ryan Sandberg, a 1982 Topps traded Cal Ripken, mm-hmm. um, yep. even some of the cards later. I mean, I, those 1987 Topps wood border. I mean, it doesn't get more junk wax than 1987 Topps. <laughs> but like, I still have, you know, I have the Topps and the Topps Tiffany, you know, Greg Maddox's in high grades, all that sort of thing. I, when I when I see those things, when I'm walking the National Sports Collectors Convention, 
to pick up little things here and there that just kind of speak to me and are more meaningful. I mean, there's things obviously people collect for value and, and, and hoping they appreciate and all that sort of stuff. And it's a huge part of the industry. But to me, you got there's always got to be an element of having fun and collecting um, what really speaks to you. I, I love the Walter Payton rookie card. I don't own one personally, but every time I walk a show and I see one, I'm like, I'm this close. I mean, he was obviously an icon. He was a little, I mean, his career was kind of ending. I mean, 85, obviously winning the Super Bowl. I was very, very young. Um, yeah. So he, I kind of like, you know, missed him a little bit. I had like Neil Anderson and some guys that came a little bit yeah. later, but that still, I mean, yeah, his aura, um, Walter Payton, what a legend. So that's probably one high on my radar that I'll, I'll probably have to pick off unless you buy them all before I can get one at a show or something. I see what you did there. Um, speaking of what it is that you're collecting specifically, cars versus memorabilia. It sounds like you have a take on that. I, you know, loves me my cars, loves me my memorabilia. But if I had a spare, you know, $100,000, I would probably go out and buy a Walter Payton game-worn jersey before I would buy a Walter Payton card. Uh, that's the ultimate one-on-one, right? Yeah. That's the only time he wore this jersey either this season or this game, whatever. And I want that on my man cave wall, right? Right. Rather than a shelf. And there's nothing, listen, there's nothing wrong with cards. Love cards. But yeah. given my druthers, I would, I would invest and, and, and for an aesthetic purposes and financial purposes, go with the game awards. Where, where's your head on that? Yeah. I mean, again, it goes back like a lot of collectors. I, I like to show off my stuff. I like to, you know, having something totally. on the wall, something I just look at every day. Um, speaks to me and I think it's really cool and fun. I, I also live in New York City, so I'm mindful of how much space I have in a New York City <laughs> apartment. Um so you know I you know when friends come over and I pull out you know my slabs and I show my cards and all that stuff like it's fun and cool but like they're kind of then you kind of like go put them away and that sort of thing. So yeah I mean it, it's a balance. Like I said, I mean I'm always out there like if I find something the, the game worn jersey world is tough. I mean there's just not a lot of stuff readily available. So if I see something pop here or there like I might go out and, and purchase that. With cards, I mean, the market's so much larger for cards. There's so many more card collectors. Um, so even if there are a higher quantity, maybe of a, you know, a grade 10 of, of this card or that card out there, there's so many more eyeballs and so many more people looking for that, that actually the, the supply demand equation might be, you know, equally as, you know, hard in that trading card space versus the game use memorabilia. But right. to me, it's, it's a balance. I don't, I don't go in looking for anything in particular, just kind of what speaks to me, what pops on the market. Like I said, that no name on front Frank Thomas, what an iconic card, what an iconic story. And to see one in a 10, I mean, that was, that really just piqued my interest. Too bad I didn't land it. All right, let's pivot over to Tops slash Fanatics. You've been part of that orbit for, as you said, over a decade now. And 2021, fall of 2021, late summer, early fall of 2021 was when all of the all of it went down. Fanatics took over the world. Nobody saw it coming. I was at uh, the National Sports Collectors Convention. Uh, the announcements were made right around then, right after then. And, you know, me, my colleagues, my friends in the space, we were blindsided. I don't mean in a bad way. We just did not see it coming. Tell us what you can about how this all came to pass, how the announcement was kept under the DL, uh, what kind of vibe was going on within the company uh, before, during, and after? 
Yeah. Um, so I, I think as a lot of folks know, um, Tops was actually in the process of going public via SPAC um, with Mudra Capital. So um, at that time, um, in the process of going public, you know, we were obviously working on cementing um, all of our deals, all of our contracts, everything that we could. Um, we were, you know, always in talks with the leagues and the PAs and, and having all those sorts of discussions. Um, and yeah, when it came late August, um, as we were literally leading right up to going public, um, that's when the news broke. And um, yeah, I mean, to me, it was um, disappointing. It hurt because um, you develop friendships, um, not only business relationships with your partners at the leagues and the players association. Um, but you also have to understand it's a business, right? And, you know, sometimes, you know, you got to put the personal stuff aside and focus on the business aspect of it. Um, I thought it was a, a brilliant move by Michael Rubin and Fanatics. Um, wasn't too happy with them at the time. Uh, all the folks at Fanatics <laughs> do know that. Um, but um, when, when I saw it happen, you know, we've been watching Fanatics for years. I mean, what an intriguing company run by an incredible executive in Michael Rubin and the team he's built around him and, and what they've accomplished um, already. And, and they're still in the early innings of where they're trying to go. To, so to see Fanatics, you know, expand into the betting and gaming space, expand into the collectible space makes sense. So, you know, how it went down, not not great for us folks at Tops there uh, for a minute. Um, but knowing the complexity of the business, um, knowing that Fanatics didn't have those built-in capabilities. Um, for people that have been around this industry long enough, like this is extremely complicated. I mean, you have to have relationships with agents and athletes and trading card manufacturing. There's very few places in the world that make this stuff. Um, printing is easy. Lots of people print, but cutting and collating and autograph operations and sending cards out and Tops tries to do a lot of on-card autographs. Having all that infrastructure to just turn something on, um, we felt was going to be a reach. So you know, a few months passed and in discussions with fanatics about acquiring tops, it, it made a lot of natural sense. Um, the ownership group uh, at tops, including Michael Eisner and Madison Dearborn, you know, again, probably not thrilled with how things went down, but happy to see Major League Baseball and tops continue. Um, for me and my team now being a part of fanatics collectibles, um, it's been awesome. Um, you know, we were in the process of going public public at legacy tops. So some of the investments, some of the things we wanted to do were a little bit put on hold. I mean, the process of going public is a bear to really, you know, you got to sink a lot of time and resources. And during one of the most exciting times in the industry, I felt there were some things that we could be doing differently that we could invest behind in a different way. Um, but we were waiting, you know, to become public and have access to the public capital markets and make those sorts of investments. At Fanatics, when they acquired us, they saw us just as kind of a, a diamond in the rough. This industry has so much potential. There's so much we can do for the collector. There's so much more marketing we can do. We can help this collector journey. We can attract new people. You know, a lot of us who have been around this for a while, we think of this industry as this big, vast, like everyone knows tops. We've been around for forever. Fanatics jumps in. Uh, everyone knows collecting. But when you actually look at the ecosystem of collecting, it's not that big. There's so much room and upside. It's so fun and amazing, but it's hard. It's really, really hard right now for new collectors to break in. I have a lot of friends who have kids of collecting age now, six, seven, eight, nine years old that want to get into it, that go to a Walmart or Target or go to a hobby store, buy a box of cards. There's odds and tiny little fine print. You open things up, you get this, you don't know if it's valuable, The all the different color parallels and refractors mm -hmm. and number. We all know the lingo. We can all talk the talk. But at Fanatics, you know, I think they're, you know, we're really focused on trying to draw a lot of new folks into this business, simplify things. Um, and it's going to take some time. Um, there's a lot of stuff we need to improve. There's a lot of things we need to get better, better at. But 
Um, the collector is what we're focused on, really trying to make a much better experience for collectors. And we're in kind of the build, buy, and partner mode with folks in the industry about how we're going to make that possible. So I think you'll see a lot coming out of Fanatics Collectibles um, in the coming months. We've hired a lot of folks. We've hired, you know, at the executive level, we've hired at the junior level and everywhere in between. We have lots of job openings. So if you are folks out there looking for a job at uh-huh. Fanatics Collectibles, there's there's many out there and available. Check out the website. Uh, you can you can find lots of good stuff. Um, I want to go deeper uh, as to what you guys are going to be doing moving forward, but I also want to step backwards. Listen, I appreciate the fact that you were honest about the uh, the transition. Right? It was it was it caught everybody by surprise. Um, I was uh, had uh, speaking with a friend of mine at Tops right after it happened, and she's like, "I can't talk about." I just can't talk about it. And I think that bespeaks of um, collecting in general, the emotional aspect of it. And I think that's what kind of brings us all together. Um, The serious collectors and the people within the industry is we are lucky enough to get to, to play with our toys, right? That's our job. And it brings us back to childhood. And that's, what's special about collecting. Um, When all this went down and you're obviously we're, we're pretty emotional about it yourself. Well, the, the vibe at the company, it seems like it was people were, I mean, heartbroken might be overstating it, but there was definitely a, Oh my God, what's next sort of feeling. I think heartbroken is honestly accurate. Um, Mm. You know, for what it's worth, um, the people that work at Tops Now Fanatics Collectibles, they care deeply about this business. Mm-hmm. You know, we, a lot of us, I mean, myself included, and then kind of how I lead, I mean, I treat this as my own. I treat this as my own company, my own business. Um, and we really try hard. You know, we're not perfect by any means. We're continuing <laughs> to try to improve. But it was, yeah, it, it hurt. It hurt bad. I mean, because, you know, one, during the pandemic, we saw such an acceleration of people collecting. We saw such an acceleration of people digging out their own old cards, you know, getting back into it. You know, I remember when I started at tops in 2009, you know, I'd go out to a restaurant, I'd be at a a party and you know, Oh, what do you do? Uh, I work for tops. Oh, are are trading cards still a thing? Right. I I hated that. That was always the thing. (laughs) And they would tell me their collecting stories, 1987 and, but all the stuff's junk and all this, you'd hear all those stories. And then you fast forward to like 2021, you know, I I had the coolest job in the world. Trading cards are back. Everyone's into it. They're doing all this stuff. So, you know, to see that momentum, to see a lot of that, you know, to see so many people coming back into it was so exciting, so energizing when we're all at home, we're in a pandemic, people are down, people are sick, that you could find solace in this awesome hobby that we have that brings joy to people. And then that happened in late 21. It was like, not good, but um, the team stuck with it. You know, we were, I guess, probably eternal optimists uh, inside. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, when it all went down, there was part of me like the first couple of days, I'm like, you know what? We should just sell the fanatics. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. let's stick with this thing. Let's go with this. Um, you know, and like I said, we'd watched fanatics from the sidelines for many years. We'd seen what they'd been up to, you know, um, in the commerce space, the juggernaut that they were developing. So to latch onto that, you know, Uh, would be a good outcome. And and thankfully it happened in the past 12 months. Uh, We made a lot of good steps um, in the right direction. So we have a lot of work to do still. We're all well aware of that, but it's, we're, we're in a good place. So when the Fanatics Tops Takeover topic comes up amongst collectors, uh, both just collectors and business types, 
that the, that first batch of answers you just gave, that's the first thing people ask. How did we get here? The second thing people ask is, where are we going? And I don't want to say it's shadowy. It's not like you guys are hiding things, but we don't know a lot of the uh, how the sausage is made, right? What can you tell us about where you're at right now and what Tops is going to, or Fanatics Collectibles, I should say, uh, what's going to be happening in the uh, near and distant future? And please feel free to get as nerdy and in the weeds as you want. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we're, you know, you'll see a lot more coming out of Fanatics Collectibles in the coming, you know, weeks and months here. Um, a lot of what's going on is, you know, there was when, when Tops was acquired, there was still a lot of um, headaches in our supply chain, to say the least. Mm. Um, we spent a lot of time trying to get supply. Uh, and this is the industry in general, right? You see this with Panini and Upper Deck and uh, other folks as well, um, trying to get our productions and everything back on track, back in line, making a lot of investments uh, in that side of the business. So um, where we sit today, um, we're still behind. We're still trying to get 2022 releases out in 2023, um, but we're really focused on the collector. That's our North Star is improving the collector experience. So that takes time. That doesn't happen overnight. Um, and we, you know, what we're really trying to do is um, invest in marketing tremendously, invest in education, um, do fun and exciting programs to um, get people into hobby stores, uh, attract people to breaks, um, get our products more readily available, get price points more into a better realm of of delivering a better value to consumers. You know, sometimes right. you see these secondary market values of our products that that's not what we charged in the primary. Where they go in the secondary, I mean, it, it's it's nice to see sometimes that they're so sought after that they rise to certain levels. But we know too that can be bad for existing collectors and attracting new collectors to make sure we have that right value equation. So in terms of where we're going, I mean, I think you saw a really fun um, program that we did with the MVPs in baseball with Aaron Judge and Paul Goldschmidt. We did that MVP Chrome program um, where we, um, you know, delivered value to collectors that held the Chrome uh, cards of both those MVPs, bring them into a hobby store, drive traffic to those hobby stores, get your $20 for a base, and you know the tiers went up to forty dollars. The color parallels at a hundred and up to two hundred dollars for you know the low numbered colored parallels to drive a lot of traffic back into hobby stores, get people to dust off some cards from a few months ago, give those MVP cards uh, meaning, um, and yeah, reignite some passion. Um, you know, towards the end of the year, towards the holiday season. So that was a fun program that we launched. Um, but I think as you as we approach Series One, there's going to be a bunch of announcements around Series One. Um, but generally speaking, we really have an eye uh, towards uh, improving the collector experience, educating collectors, marketing the category like no other. Um, there's been some quality issues. Uh, I'll fully acknowledge some quality issues in the past several months um, that are unacceptable to us um, that we're looking to fix. Uh, we have a whole crew going down to our manufacturing, 18 people, uh, in fact, going to our manufacturer tomorrow. Um, we'll be there tomorrow on Friday, continuing to improve things. So we we truly care about the collectors making a great collector experience. Um, so you'll see a lot more there uh, across the board. You'll see some changes to configurations. You'll see some products uh, be sunset. You'll see some new products emerge. You'll see some new inserts. Uh, you'll see us leveraging athlete relations uh, in a better way to deliver to consumers, to hobby stores, to collectors alike. Um, there's a lot in store. So um, stay tuned. Um, and we'll be out there a lot more present, doing a lot more things like this. Uh, to speak with our collectors, to speak with fans of uh, Fanatics Collectibles and the trading card industry in general. 
So we're recording this on January 4th, and our goal with all of our podcasts is to kind of keep it evergreeny, as evergreeny as possible. Having said that, if there is any news, we are happy to break it. Dave, do you have anything you can drop on the show that nobody knows about yet? (laughs) (laughs) Um... I don't think I have anything uh, readily available to drop uh, today. Yeah, yeah. Nothing, nothing today. Okay, fair enough. But what you can't answer for me, Fanatics Collectibles, is that just a semantical thing or is the phrase Fanatics Collectibles a goal, right? We want this to be an individual entity or is it just kind of, this is what we're calling our card division? Yeah, no, so... um at Fanatics, basically, there's a holding company and there's three pillars underneath the holding company. So what Fanatics has traditionally been known for is the commerce side. All the mm-hmm. merchandise, you know, Fanatics runs NFL shop and MLB shop and NBA. They, they run, you know, hundreds of college uh, shops, um, all sorts of uh, different, I think are close to 900 websites under the commerce uh, umbrella. That's pillar number one. That's what Fanatics has historically been known for. And then the two expansion pillars, you have Fanatics Betting and Gaming that'll be launching its product um, in the coming months. Um, so you'll see uh, a big move uh, on the betting and gaming side. And then us in collectibles. Now, those three pillars, you know, in effect, you know, have their own, you know, each has its own CEO, its own executive team. They kind of, I don't want to say operate independently. We're one fanatics. We all talk to each other. You know, I sit next to the betting and gaming guys, hold co's, you know, 100 feet away from me down the hallway. Uh, so we're all in the same offices and all kind of working together um, as one fanatics. But we do have three individual pillars collectibles. We hired a CEO, Mike Mahan, um, several months back. So he's in charge of our vertical. Um, but all the three businesses talk all the time. We try to leverage the strengths across the board. But at the end of the day, all three pillars are trying to deliver for fans, collectors, et cetera. Now, hearing about that, right? That's a very corporate environment. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I like working in a corporate environment, frankly. But collectors might be scared off by that. But I know I do know that you guys are very intent on keeping hobby stores and small businesses looped in. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so one thing I would tell you is, I mean, we still uh, you see big numbers, at like thirty-one billion dollar valuations, and all this stuff out there. We, yeah. we still run like a startup. <laughs> I mean, you know, we still think we're in the early innings of what Fanatics, the entire company, can accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, we have a leader all the way at the top, in Michael Rubin, who is just infectious personality. Um, you know, runs 24-7, is in each of the three business units every day, cares so much about these businesses. So there's a, a lot of energy and enthusiasm. So I wouldn't worry too much about a corporate type environment. If you, you know ever come over to Fanatics, our, our headquarters here in New York City, uh, it's 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 not that way. I mean, everybody <laughs> talks to each other in the hallway. I mean, there's I mean, yes, you have to have a hierarchy. There's people in charge, but um, it's a really, it's a good positive um, working environment. So I think that's really important as you're trying to build and deliver to the fans and collectors. And I'll touch a little bit on the hobby stores as well. I think um, folks saw, you know, on the collectible side, we made a big move earlier this year um, in, um, in, in stopping our supply of uh, baseball product to GTS, uh, one of our largest distributors. Um, and the goal there was we wanted to have more direct relationships with the hobby stores ourselves. Mm-hmm. We want to work with them. We want to hear from them. We want to, you know, a lot of new hobby stores wanted to come in and build businesses, but couldn't access product. There was a whole legacy system for how distributors were allocating product. We want to help entrepreneurs 
we feel the hobby store. It's still the lifeblood of this industry. Totally. That's, where, that's where relationships happen. That's where, you know, the local store, we, we love Target. We love Walmart. We love the casual stuff. You know, you can come to tops.com. You can buy the stuff online. You can go into breaks, but those intimate environments where you go to the hobby shop, you talk to the store owner, you run into collectors there, you buy your supplies, you do the whole thing. The hobby stores are really important to us. So we're going to continue adding more hobby stores uh, directly uh, with us. And we're going to continue building programs um, to drive collectors to those hobby stores um, and continue to really um, build up entrepreneurs. We're going to support the other channels as well. We still have several distributors we work with. Um, there's a long tail in this business. There's gaming stores. There's smaller places where you can go to get trading cards, which are better managed um, through distributors. We have a breaker pilot program that we've been working on to support breakers who have a different business model are a very important part of the ecosystem. And then you have the retail environment as well, you know, with your, you know, tent poles of, of Walmart and target, um, who we do, we run a lot of business through and we feel are, you know, 6,000 doors between those two good place, uh, to, to pick up product. Now, you as a collector and as a tops truther, um, as you noted, uh, you were a little concerned about what was going to happen next. Uh, if I am not mistaken, you guys have hired people with hardcore collecting backgrounds. And that being the case, I think collectors who were nervous about the corporatizing of the industry, of the hobby, of the space, uh, don't need to be nervous about that. I don't think there's a need to be nervous. I mean, I think the industry could use a little bit more professionalism. Let's let's call ah. it. There's a, a smidge of things we could probably improve, right? I mean, it's one of these bit. things. I, I look at the I look at this industry. We're, we're all one industry, from the collector to the hobby store to the manufacturer to the grader. We're all mm -hmm. in this together. This business has exploded, right? So to me, it's like any business. When a business is a million dollars, you have to run it one way. When it's a hundred million, you have to run it a different way. So I look to all the collectors, everyone in this ecosystem, you just kind of have to, you know, think how do like at the end of the day, we need to grow the number of collectors. That's what makes this business tick. That's what mm -hmm. makes this hobby tick. That's that's what's most intriguing. That's what we all live for. We those interpersonal, you know, connections. I love going to 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 shows and just looking at what collectors are buying, hearing the conversations, talking to them about their collections. So at the end of the day, we need to draw more people in. That that's what we need to do. If they come in at a Target, great. If they come in at a hobby store, great. They buy on .com somewhere. That's all good. So really, that's what we're trying to do. I wouldn't worry. I mean, when you get as big as this industry is today, there are certain aspects that need to get a little, you know, we got to round out some of the tougher edges here and really- We got to grow up a little bit. We got to grow up. Yeah. I mean, there. I remember when breaking became a thing and like there was so much negativity, negativity and so much pushback. I mean, I'm, so. I'm a traditionalist too. There's certain breaking and things I see and I'm like- and, you know, it's not my flavor, but you turn on the TV and you just flip to the next channel. If you don't, if you don't want to watch this one, you watch that one. Um, and, and I think, you know, people are building businesses. There's so much entrepreneurship coming into this. There's so much passion. And as you said, too, I think Fanatics Collectibles has done a really good job. We're hiring more collectors. We're speaking to consumers. We're getting ourselves yeah. out there a lot more than Tops historically did. And that's a big pivot for us, too. We want to hear feedback. I would also tell people just because we're doing this, right? We read all the boards. I mean, I personally spend hours a day. I mean, I might be watching TV or watching, you know, football on Sunday. I'm reading all the boards, hearing all the feedback, reading all the stuff. So uh, I don't post, um, but trust us, we're out there, our ears to the ground. We want to do better. We want to engage those collectors. 
We're hiring more of them. We're hiring more in customer service that can speak the language and help collectors mm -hmm. when they're in a tough spot, missing hits, damaged cards. We're trying to do better across the board. Uh, those things just take time, um, but we're we're hiring away. We're I, again, I wouldn't worry about professional like over corporatizing. A little bit of professionalism, not much corporate. Nothing wrong with a little bit of professionalism. Now, this sort of attitude comes from the top, right? You're a pretty big muckety muck up there. Uh, obviously, Michael Rubin is the biggest of the muckety mucks. When he, when, when you started working with him, when you started interacting with him, were you like, okay, this guy gets it, right? He's a collector. He's in the space. He understands where we're coming from. Or did he have a pretty big learning curve uh, coming from his background? I'd probably tell you a little bit in between. I think where Michael has built his businesses is in delighting fans and consumers. He always has that as the main focus in the pillar, right? So if you're maniacally focused on delivering for fans and consumers and collectors alike, um, that's a good jump off and a good starting point. In terms of the learning curve, um, there was definitely a learning curve, but I mean, the guy is ridiculously smart. Um, mm -hmm. I remember when I first started, you know, he was telling me, you know, I, I told him, you know, we got to, you know, we're going to, you know, we have to talk about operations. We have to talk about the product stuff. We're going to do this deep dive meeting here. You know, I'll send you an update. I'll give you a call, whatever. He's like, no, no, invite me, invite me. I need to learn this stuff. I want to, you know, mm -hmm. I want to get into it. Um, Love it. he doesn't forget anything. Um, so there was a learning curve, but I mean, the guy I've, I've never seen anybody get up the learning curve so quickly. And it was really actually interesting. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but at the national sports collectors convention, uh, Michael Rubin, Mike Mahan, some other executives, uh, basically held back to back 30 minute meetings for like 10 hours, um, at the national, uh, in a conference room, speaking to hobby stores, speaking to dealers, speaking to breakers. Um, and Michael Rubin really led those meetings. He wanted to learn everything from the smallest breakers to the biggest breakers to a hobby shop that's been in business for three months to one that's been in business 30 years, all the pain points, different parts of the country, incredibly impressive. Um, and that's how you, how you learn. And he's immersed himself in the business. Um, and whatever learning curves there are, he's up it very, very quickly. That's really comforting for the future of um, not just fanatics, but the industry in general. So I always leave with a bold prediction. I, I want a bold prediction from my guests, but I'm, and I'm going to get your bold prediction in a second, but I'm going to throw this one at you. Um, it sounds like you have all the resources in the world, all the creativity in the world, all the imagination in the world over at Fanatics. If you could create a dream scenario, right? Anything in the world, money, reality is not a factor in the equation. What would the Dave Liner uh, creation be? I mean, I think that I go back to like, I want to figure out a great way to get new collectors into this hobby. I think the hobby is mm -hmm. awesome, but I think it is so incredibly complicated. And the entire ecosystem is very, um, you know, disconnected, right? From how you purchase a product, understanding the product, getting the hit, grading it, selling it, keeping it, vaulting it, all those things we've talked about, that collector journey. Um, and this has been talked about by fanatics. And I think it is very important that 
we find ways to really bring people into this business. They understand this business. They're delighted, you know, by the hobby, by collecting. Um, so if I had all the resources and if I could accelerate time, because I think a lot of these things we're trying to do, we're trying to be very mindful and strategic and thoughtful in our approach. Again, everything with the collector focus. I just wish things could happen faster. Um, mm. And that would be that would be my goal. I think that's the key to this hobby um, growing and thriving. So Dave basically wants to get all the collectors in the world under our umbrella and speed up the space-time continuum. I like that. It's a good conclusion, yeah. All right, bold prediction. Now, it could be a Chicago bold prediction in the hobby. Say, oh, I don't know, the Bears are going to win the 2023 Super Bowl and Justin Fields' card value is going to skyrocket. It could happen. Give me a bold prediction that when it comes to pass and you come and visit us again in December of 2023, we'll be like, Dave, you nailed that one. Man, bold prediction for the hobby. Um, yeah. Whew. I don't know how bold this prediction is. I I'm calling Julio Rodriguez for MVP. Woo! How about that? Julio Rodriguez, Daniel MVP. There are a lot of great players out there. I would say that's pretty bold, right? Not unrealistic, but definitely bold. I love it. Uh, Dave Liner, fellow long-suffering Chicago sports fan, fellow collector, and large muckety-muck at Fanatics. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, Alan. It's always fun. Love doing these. Whether it's a 1986 Michael Jordan Fleer rookie card, a Tom Brady playoff contenders rookie card from 2000, or, I don't know, a Marv Throneberry card that came out of a post cereal box in 1963, and yes, that's a thing, Certified Sports Guarantee will grade your sports cards quickly and accurately. A subsidiary of Certified Collectibles Group, CSG graded over 1 million cards in its first year plus on the sports collecting scene, the fastest any grading company has hit that mark. The speedy turnaround times provided by the knowledgeable, passionate team of expert sports car graders will make your CSG experience smooth, efficient, and most importantly, fair. Regardless of the athlete, the sport, or the condition of your card, CSG will treat it with the love and respect it deserves. For more information about CSG, visit csgcards.com. That's CSG, your go-to sports card grading company. We hope you enjoyed Collect This, powered by CSG. Collect This was hosted, written, produced, engineered, and scored by Alan Goldscher. If you have any comments or questions, please email us at collectthis at csgcards.com. 